Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we will speak with Roger Annis of the Canada-Haiti Action Network about his analysis of Haiti's recent presidential runoff elections. We'll hear from Saul Landau on his latest film project on the Cuban Five, and we'll hear about the possibility of the U.S. government hitting a $14 trillion debt ceiling and what that means with Dean Baker of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. First, the alert headlines for the week of April 14, 2011. A leaked draft report on G8 G20 summit spending that alleges the Conservative government lavished millions on a prominent cabinet minister's riding and misled parliament has put Stephen Harper's campaign on defensive a day before the first leaders' debate. Auditor General Sheila Fraser cautioned Canadians on Monday, saying in a statement that only her final report will represent her audit's findings and conclusions when it is tabled in Parliament. Fraser said the final report cannot be released until Parliament returns, despite all four parties calling for the document to be made public immediately. The Canadian press reported earlier Monday that the Conservative government allegedly misinformed Parliament to win approval for a $50 million G8 fund that spread taxpayers' money on dubious projects in a Conservative riding, sparking parties to call for the release of the report. Japan has raised the severity rating of its nuclear crisis to the highest level matching the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. The Level 7 rating signifies a major nuclear accident. At a news conference on Tuesday, an official from the Tokyo Electric Power Company said, quote, The radiation leak has not stopped completely, and our concern is that it could eventually exceed Ch Chernobyl. So far, Japanese officials estimate the radioactive emissions is about 10% of what occurred at Chernobyl, but radiation continues to leak from the crippled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Hidehiko Nishiyama is Japan's Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency Deputy Director General. There have been major political developments in the West African nation of Ivory Coast. Laurent Gbagbo, who had refused to step down after 10 years in power, was arrested Monday after French forces moved in on the bunker where he had been holed up for the past week. Gbagbo his wife and his aides are now being held by forces allied to Ivory Coast's internationally recognized president, Alassane Ouattara. The Washington Post reports more than half of the $38 billion in spending cuts that President Obama and lawmakers agreed to last week would hit education, labor, and health programs. Funding for job training and a children's health care initiative would also face cuts. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency will see a $1.6 billion cut, representing a 16% decrease from 2010 levels. The budget plan still needs to be voted on by the House and the Senate. On Monday, Democratic Representative George Miller of California said he had concerns over the budget deal. Miller said, Poor and middle-class families have already received more than their fair share of pain in this economy, while the wealthy and special interests have paid no price. South African President Jacob Zuma says the Libyan government has accepted an African Union peace proposal to end the eight-week-old conflict. Mr. Zuma's AU delegation met Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi in Tripoli on Sunday. 
but rebel spokesmen said there could be no truce unless Colonel Gaddafi stepped down and his forces withdrew. Mr. Zuma is now returning to South Africa. His foreign minister and the other AU heads of state are traveling on to the eastern rebel stronghold of Benghazi. Rebel spokesman Mustafa Gheriani told Reuters the proposal would be considered, but the Libyan people have made it very clear that Gaddafi must step down. West Vancouver police investigating a Mountie's use of a taser to subdue an 11-year-old boy at a group home last Thursday in Prince George, B.C., say the officer has less than two years of experience on the force and has been placed on administrative duties. Members of the West Vancouver Police Department arrived in Prince George on Sunday, three days after the incident, to begin investigation. The statement said the boy was a suspect in the stabbing of a 37-year-old man. Officers found the boy inside a group home next door to the crime scene, and when he came out, he was shocked with a stun gun. The unidentified boy was taken to hospital for assessment and then taken into custody, police said Friday. Those are the alert headlines for the week of April 14, 2011. Now for Around the Left for the week of April 14, 2011. Alternatives and Canadian Dimension have partnered to organize an international conference on climate justice and ecological alternatives. Cochabamba Plus One features dozens of speakers from around the world, including Pablo Salon, Bolivian ambassador to the United Nations and initiator of the World People's Conference on Climate Change in Cochabamba, Judy Rebeck, Ian Angus, Cy Gonick, Tony Clark, John Cartwright, and Dale Marshall. The conference will take place April 15th to 17th at the University of Quebec at Montreal. For more information and to register, go to canadiandimension.com or alternatives.ca. The third Toronto People's Assembly on Climate Justice will be held on April 23rd at the Ryerson University Student Centre. To achieve the overall goal of realizing an inclusive, united and empowered climate justice movement in Toronto, this meeting will plan a large-scale collective action, explore the intersection between spirituality and climate justice, share stories of resistance, struggle and victory, and contribute to the creation of a climate justice popular consultation. The People's Assembly will begin at 10 o'clock a.m. and admission is pay what you can. The Palestinian Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions National Committee has launched an international campaign to stop the Jewish National Fund and strip it of its official charity status. The JNF is instrumental in dispossessing indigenous Palestinians from their land, preventing Palestinian citizens of Israel from owning or leasing over 90% of land in Israel and literally covering up ethnically cleansed Palestinian villages by planting trees on top of and around the land. To sign the JNF call for action and to find out about more opportunities to stop the JNF, go to www.stopthejnf.org. May Day is fast approaching, and this year will be the day before a federal election. In Ottawa, meet at Parliament Hill at 1 o'clock p.m. and join national and district labour organizations to demand an accountable government for deteriorating wages, working conditions, benefits and pensions. A rally organized by No One Is Illegal Toronto will start at 1 o'clock with a march to follow. Meet at the corner of Queen and Jameson in Toronto to defend workers' rights and demand status for all. The third conference on the impact of Canadian mining on local communities throughout the world is set to take place May 6th to 8th in Toronto. 
Mining Injustice, Confronting Corporate Impunity, will feature several keynote speakers and workshops organized along themes of gendered violence, militarization, indigenous perspectives, labor rights, and environmental effects. The conference will be held at Sydney Smith Hall, room 2117 at the University of Toronto. For more information, go to the Mining Injustice Solidarity Network's website at solidarityresponse.net. The Rebels Feminist Movement is inviting all young women between 14 and 35 years of age to the second Pan-Canadian Young Feminist Gathering. This gathering is a great opportunity for young women to learn about the varied understandings of feminism, to share struggles and discuss strategies of resistance, and create solidarity among young feminists in Canada. The gathering will be held in Winnipeg from May 20th to 23rd. For more information, go to rebels.org. Marxism 2011, a three-day conference from May 27th to 29th, will be held at the Ryerson University Student Centre in Toronto. This year's conference will feature a daily rally and over 40 talks and panels discussing lessons from Wisconsin, changes in Venezuela and Bolivia, the idea of humanitarian intervention, queer liberation theory, and a continuing analysis of the global economic crisis, among many others. Register online at marxismconference.ca There are reduced rates for students and unwaged. That's all for Around the Left for the week of April 14th, 2011. It was recently announced on April 4th, 2011 that Michelle Sweet Mickey Martelli had just secured two-thirds of the vote in the runoff elections for the presidency of Haiti. So what does this mean for the future of Haiti? Well, we're joined on the line right now by Roger Annis. He is a coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network based in Vancouver and writes frequently on Haiti-related issues. So thank you for joining us, Roger. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, now, Michel Martelli, uh, he's been described by the uh, mainstream press as a dark horse candidate and a political outsider. Could you maybe give us a little bit of background on this man? Uh, what do we know about him? Sure. Well, I, there's actually quite a media whitewash going on about uh, who he represents and who this electoral process that brought him into the presidency, what, what this represents. We'll be writing about this in the coming days. He's someone with a pretty dark past. He was associated with the uh, former Duvalier regime. He supported the overthrow of elected government in Haiti in 2004, President uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. His political platform in this electoral process, and I won't really call it an election because it doesn't really deserve that uh, uh, good a description, uh, among other things, he's calling for the uh, reestablishment of the Haitian Armed Forces, which was the hated army of the Duvalier regime that was responsible for so many human rights atrocities. So this is really uh, a setback for the Haitian people in the in a situation where very, very serious uh, aftermaths of the earthquake remain unresolved in Haiti. Hundreds of thousands of Haitian people still living in very squalid uh, tent conditions and, and so on. So you, uh, you're you suggesting, though, that this uh, the elections were uh, not uh, exactly fair. I mean, could you maybe go into a little bit more detail? I mean, what are your, what's your basis for uh, arguing that this was uh, maybe rigged? Yeah, well, 
the uh, the second round of the Haitian elections took place on March 20th, and this is the round in which uh, Martali uh, ran against uh, Mirlan Maniga, an elderly uh, woman uh, also with a right-wing uh, past in Haiti. But this second round was the product of the first round that the world witnessed on November 28, 2010, and which was just overwhelmingly described by uh, reporters and human rights organizations who were in Haiti as a, as a fraud, a sham. The strongest uh, language was used by those that were on the scene. And so how could a, uh, a quote-unquote fraud and sham of November 28, 2010 produce an acceptable result in, in March of 2011? This is the question that most of the mainstream media in Canada, as well as internationally, is simply not prepared to ask because the answer to that question is an embarrassment. What we have is a two-round electoral process that really, in our opinion, and our, the, that of our colleagues uh, in the United States and in Haiti, represents uh, a, an electoral coup d'etat, uh, um, uh, an election process in which the political party of Jean-Bertrand Aristide was formally excluded, an election process in which the possibility for the Haitian people to actually get to the polls and cast a ballot was seriously compromised by a whole series of, of uh, inadequacies or, or uh, outright uh, irregularities and fraud. And, you know, the end result is, is unarguable. This uh, two-round election process in Haiti has uh, produced the lowest voter turnout rate in the history, or at least in the modern history of the Western Hemisphere, for a national election. This is the conclusion of a study by the Center for Economic Policy Research in Washington, D.C. So I think that's the, final, that's the final call in this election, how the Haitian people responded to it. And less than 25% of Haitians participated in the, in the two rounds of this process. So with this low voter turnout, was the vote suppressed, or was it just that a lot of people didn't see Fanmi Lavalas on the ballot and just decided not to participate? Well, it was both. It was difficult for people who wanted to register to vote to do so, and they couldn't do so after the first round. Whatever was in place in the chaotic post-earthquake conditions in November 28th, those were the voters who could then vote in the second round. So there were, there were undoubtedly hundreds of thousands of Haitians who tried and were simply unable to, to register to vote. But above all, the Haitian people simply turned their back on the two right-wing choices that they had. There's a a lawyer in the United States uh, deeply involved in Haitian human rights issues, and he, he compared this election to an election in the United States in which the voters were given simply two choices, the Republican Party or the Tea Party. Hmm. These were the decisions of the Electoral Council of Haiti, itself an unconstitutional body, that were firmly backed by the international community, the OAS, the UN Security Council, the governments of Europe, United States, and Canada, and the Haitian people, I think, have, have given their verdict on this result. Uh, what this means is that we enter now into a period of, sadly, of great instabi- in political instability in Haiti. Haiti does not have an authoritative and legitimate government. And, of course, everyone is hoping and praying against hope that Martali will magically transform his past, his political associations, his loyalties, and somehow do something about the, uh, the uh, tragic situation still prevailing in Haiti. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I don't think people have any reason to believe in, in miracles like that. Um, no, over the last uh, couple of months, there was a, a lot of uh, uh, talk about how both Duvalier and Aristide had uh, returned to Haiti. Uh, how, how have the, the returns of these two past leaders uh, 
impacted on uh, Haitian society and Haitian politics, if, if there has been any impact? Yeah. Well, Duvalier's return was the first, and it was deeply troubling, because here's a man who is guilty of, of massive human rights violations during the time in which he ruled Haiti, 1971 to 1986. He was given carte blanche by France to travel from France to Haiti. He traveled through the French colony of, uh, of Guadeloupe, and so uh, this was, you know, approved at the highest levels of the French government and probably of the uh, of the uh, Security Council uh, uh, governments that are deeply involved in, in Haiti. Um, this was very troubling for Haitian people. What did this represent? Well, so far he's he's kind of not been uh, central to uh, political life in Haiti. There's some question as to the frailty of his health. Uh, there is an effort by the Haitian government to bring him to trial on uh, human rights uh, uh, violations. It's a difficult process because Haiti's judicial system is weak, underfunded, and, and so on. The case of Jean-Bertrand Aristide is completely different. This is a president who was elected overwhelmingly by the Haitian people in the year 2000, then overthrown in 2004, and he's been living in exile in South Africa. The United States and Canada sought to prevent his return to Haiti on March 18th. Uh, and of course, they're the reason why he hasn't been there until now. Um, upon his return, thousands and thousands of Haitian people have come out into the streets to welcome it. He has pledged himself to the earthquake reconstruction process. And of course, he'll be an important uh, figure in politics. Not Probably not, again, as a candidate for the presidency of Haiti, but certainly in assisting his party, Family Lavalas, in getting back on its feet, fighting against the uh, exclusions and, and other legal uh, repressive measures that been ta- have been taken against it so that it can become a viable part of uh, national political life in Haiti once again. Okay. And, and just uh, quickly, uh, with uh, Haiti being devastated by hurricanes, poverty, cholera, and, of course, the earthquake of last year, and corruption, how could how you see Canadians being able to best help Haitians rebuild their society? Well, there's two very important things we can do. Number one is we can lobby and pressure to get the Canadian government and get the U.S. government and, and the European governments off the backs of the Haitian people, allow the political will of the Haitian people to be expressed and to be respected. And this is anything but the history over the past 25 years in Haiti. Uh, there have been two uh, military coups against elected government in Haiti, and now we have a third electoral coup. So that's the most important thing. Canadians have to get their government to be playing a constructive role in Haiti instead of this destructive uh, interference role. And we have a big job in that regard in Parliament, because sadly there is not a single member of the Canadian Parliament at this, time, at this point in time who is speaking out forcefully for social justice or for sovereignty in Haiti. The other thing Canadians can do is identify and support the organizations that are providing assistance in Haiti, whether it is in the field of human rights, uh, for example, the Institute for Justice and Democracy in Haiti, which has a, an allied uh, legal agency in Haiti. Partners in Health is a, a very important uh, health provider in Haiti, as is the Cuban Medical Mission, and so there are ways in which people can both um, financially support uh, those medical efforts, but also uh, make them better known. And in fact, we've just had uh, come to Vancouver and Winnipeg, the, the Director of Policy and Advocacy for Partners in Health, because we're trying to interest health professionals in Canada in, 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 in supporting the good work of Partners in Health. And I could list an awful lot of other projects. People can go to our website to get more information. Some of your listeners will already be involved. That's very key, is supporting the projects that are actually helping Haitians survive and, and, and develop a, uh, an equitable and a just society. It's a tough struggle, and there's a long way to go, and there's no substitute for having 
a government, a, a sovereign and social justice government in in Haiti with strong international partners. We're a long way from away from that, and that's that's the thing that we've got to be also deeply involved in helping to create. Well, we thank you for those insights, Roger Annis, and uh, we'll uh, see how things develop as uh, under this new uh, president. Thank you for joining us on Alert. Oh, you're welcome. It's good talking to you. And uh, that was Roger Annis. He's the coordinator of the Canada-Haiti Action Network based in Vancouver. Over the past few weeks, the American people have been facing the threat of a government shutdown arising because it is running close to the $14 trillion debt ceiling set by the U.S. Congress. Alert contacted economist Dean Baker to explain the budgetary crisis there. Dean Baker is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. So, Dean Baker, thank you for joining us. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this debt ceiling? This is a, a concept that's new to Canadians. Uh, where and when did that idea originate? This dates back about 50 or 60 years. I, I was looking at it recently because uh, some of us thought it was always there, and it actually hasn't been. But what happens is Congress authorizes a certain amount of borrowing. And beyond that, the Treasury is not authorized to borrow. So in the event where you're running a deficit, as of course the U.S. government is, if it needs to borrow to get additional funding, it can only do that up to the ceiling. And as uh, on our current path, we're projected to hit that ceiling somewhere in May. So we're pretty close to it right now. Well, okay, what would happen if the federal debt were to reach that ceiling? Well, there's two stories. First off, the, the immediate story is that the Treasury has some ability to shuffle around funds. So, you know, if we're on autopilot and we just say, when do we hit the ceiling? Uh, I think Timothy Geithner, our Treasury Secretary, put the date at May 16th. But if we're actually at May 16th and nothing's been done, he has some ability to shuffle funds to push that out, at least to July. And I've heard some analysts say that could be as late as September before you're literally at the edge. And what that means being at the edge is you have bills to pay, you have, uh, most importantly, perhaps government bonds coming due, and you don't have the money in the bank, and you're not authorized, Treasury Secretary is not authorized to, to issue new bonds to pay off the, the ones that are coming due. And that does create the possibility of a government default, which you know obviously would have enormous implications, certainly for the U.S., but really the whole world. What uh, could you maybe concretize that a little bit? What do you see happening in uh, in real terms with that kind of a default? Well, if you actually got that, what that would mean is, you know, government bonds are coming due all the time. So you have government bond payments that, you know, let's say you have $5 billion in bonds that are coming due uh, August 23rd, and there's no money in the bank. So at that point, the people are turning in their bonds, and the Treasury has to go, well, we can't pay you. We don't have the money. And that would be an earthquake in, you know, financial markets because suddenly government bonds, U.S. government bonds, have been considered the rock, uh, rock bed, you know, absolute riskless asset. Well, suddenly that's no longer true because here it is, government bonds are supposed to be paid and there's no money to pay them off. So that would undoubtedly cause a financial crisis of the order, in fact, probably bigger than what we saw back in the fall of 08 because suddenly all these banks are holding assets that they were valuing as being 100% absolute secure, and clearly that's no longer the case. And I don't think anyone's going to throw all their government bonds in the, in the garbage because they're, they're not going to be worthless, but clearly you can't treat them as being, you know, absolute, 
perfectly safe when it's at that point the case that you you can't turn them in because uh, at least at that moment the federal government doesn't have the money. Mm. So um, in, in terms of uh, global impacts then, I mean, would this, you'd find people, you know, basically trying to get rid of the, uh, you know, of all the, the treasury bonds and, and such that they might be holding? Or... I don't think you're likely to see people looking to dump them, but the point is that they would be selling them at a discount. So I don't, you know, everyone's not going to say, oh, my bonds are now worthless. But the point is that uh, they would no longer value them at 100 cents on the dollar. And you, you undoubtedly will see some people that do want to, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, I wanted something that was a totally safe asset. Turns out treasury bonds don't fit the bill. So I'm going to sell them and, you know, maybe take uh, 90 cents on the dollar or something like that and trade them in for, you know, would be German government bonds or, you know, I don't know what the next item on the list is, but something that they can consider safer than at that point than U.S. government bonds. Hmm. Uh, well, what could you see as being uh, the impact on Canada, being uh, that we are very closely tied to the United States in, in so many ways? Well, there'd be two two sort of obvious impacts that I would see. One is simply that... Uh, um, Canada also, Canadian banks are going to be holding U.S. government bonds as assets. Your central bank holds U.S. government bonds as assets. You'd, you would have to, in effect, uh, value them at something less than 100 cents on the dollar, at least insofar as there's a period of time. And, you know, we don't know whether this is one day, one week, one month, but some period of time where at least the, the U.S. Treasury is incapable of paying its debts. So that would mean some write down of value, at least for a period of time. So that would create, you know, transfer the financial crisis to Canada. The other part of the story, of course, is it's almost inconceivable to imagine this happening without the U.S. going into a deeper recession. Obviously, we're not out of the last one, but it, we'd almost certainly see a big fall off in employment and jobs, which is going to spill over into Canada since we're obviously a big market for you, and we're going to be buying a lot less Canadian goods and services. Mm. Now. What what exactly w- w- is meant when you talk about a government shutdown arising? Um, again, what does that mean in terms of uh, like what would actually happen? Well, it would mean the government's, again, not able to pay its bills. So part of that story, of course, is paying bills for government agencies, the workers that go to work at government agencies, um, paying bills for you know all the things that the government buys, whether it's uh, goods and services for the defense sector, uh, for education. I mean, at, at that point, if, if we're literally up against this debt ceiling, um, you'd have to have some serious shuffling around because we have much more by way of uh, commitments on an ongoing basis than we do have revenue coming in. So you have to figure out who's getting paid what. And that, no doubt, would be a very chaotic situation. Okay, late last Friday, the Obama administration cut $38 billion from its budget to avert the shutdown. Um, is that going to re- resolve the situation? This is a kind of a separate issue. These, these sort of go side by side, and I'm sure it's confusing for someone who's not. It's confusing for people in the United States, but even more confusing for people outside. So we have a, a separate path. On the one hand, we have our, our budget that has to be um, approved by Congress, signed by the president, then there's this totally separate issue with the debt ceiling. So what Congress was actually fighting over with, with President Obama and uh, reached agreement on last Friday was the budget for the rest of the 2011 fiscal year, which we're already halfway through. The 2011 fiscal year will end on October 1st, 2011. So 
or most of the way through that fiscal year, and there were still a number of sections of the government where they hadn't actually appropriated money for the whole year. So what they're trying to agree on was a budget for those sections of the government for the rest of this year, and that's what they did end up coming to agreement on last Friday. Okay, so the the next fiscal year being 2012, I believe that Paul Ryan, who's the House Budget Committee chairman, outlined a, a budget proposal. Uh, could you summarize for us what that proposal entails and, and what your thoughts are about it? Yeah, well, this is a, a very uh, big change if you know were to get through. I mean, it'd be, to my mind, almost impossible. But the basic story in there is, there are very big cuts in our, our Medicare program, our health care program for people over age 65, uh, very big cuts in our Medicaid program, which is our, our health care program for low-income people, um, large cuts to sort of our domestic discretionary of the bu- area of the budget. That's the area of the budget that funds most other areas, education, uh, training, uh, research and development, transportation, that all fits in this uh, domestic discretionary. And it's coupled with very large tax increases that go primarily to high-end earners. So currently, uh, in law at least, our top tax rate is supposed to go to 39.6%. This is for people who earn more than about $500,000 a year. Um, under his plan, it would fall to 25%. And over the course of a decade, that would come to about $2.9 trillion in tax cuts. So it's it would be a very big change. And... Um, my understanding is the Republicans in the House of Representatives are likely to approve it. There's no way the Democratic Senate will approve that. No way President Obama would sign anything like that. Okay, you you just uh, you know hinted at something there. Uh, there's a lot of pressure coming from the the new conservative majority in the House. Uh, uh, generally, how do you, how are you finding that Obama is responding to that pressure coming from that uh, new conservative majority there? Well. You know, the agreement uh, that he made on the budget suggests that he's giving in a great deal. Um, he both gave them about two-thirds of what they asked for because they were demanding $61 billion in cuts, and the number they settled on, I believe, was 38 So it's a bit shy of two-thirds of what they're asking for in their cuts. But even more importantly, I think, is he, he's largely conceded the argument to them. So when, when we go back to President Obama first took office in 2009, the first thing he said was, look, we have to boost the economy. The economy's collapsed because of a collapse in private sector spending. The government has to fill that gap. And he came out with a big stimulus package. He said, this is going to help fill the gap. And the idea then was government spending was good and important. It was going to create jobs and fill this gap. But he turned around in response to the Republicans in Congress. He turned around and said, this is great. We made $39 billion in cuts. That's the biggest cuts ever. I don't know whether that statement's true or not, but he was boasting about that. So he flipped 180 degrees to embrace the Republicans' rhetoric. So it's quite striking to me that they achieved an enormous victory, not so much in how much they got by way of cuts. I mean, that may or may not be important. I mean, $38 billion in terms of our, our budget of about $3.7 trillion isn't that much money. But in terms of the rhetoric, the, controlling the debate, he, he's basically adopted the Republican line. Well, on that note, uh, Dean Baker, I want to thank you very much for clarifying this whole uh, uh, budget issue with us, and uh, thank you for joining us on our show. Thanks a lot for having me on. And that was Dean Baker. He's co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C.
Saul Landau is a California-based author, broadcaster, and filmmaker. He is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective and a frequent contributor to Alert. He is with us today to talk about his new film. So welcome back to Alert Radio, Saul Landau. Well, thank you for having me again. So your new film, Will the Real Terrorist Stand Up, is just premiering across North America. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, the, the film is really a film about U.S.-Cuba policy over 50-plus years. And, uh, and it's also the story of the Cuban Five. These are five Cuban intelligence agents who infiltrated um, violent exile groups in Miami who had been bombing Cuban hotels and restaurants and nightclubs um, to try to keep the tourists from going to Cuba. And so Cuban state security sent its agents in since the FBI was not doing very much to stop them. And um, then these agents were essentially indirectly getting their information back to the FBI in hopes that the FBI would seize weapons and explosives. And indeed, the U.S. government had agreed that they would do this. But instead, the FBI arrested the five agents. And they were tried in Miami, which is, you know, the equivalent of trying a Jew in Berlin in 1939. And uh, miraculously enough, they were convicted and sentenced to horrendously long, draconian prison sentences, which they are all serving today in U.S. federal penitentiaries. Um, so... Uh, the terrorists, of course, are walking the streets. One of them was acquitted this week in a uh, trial in El Paso, Texas. And it was a fantastically interesting trial. It lasted 11 weeks long. And the U.S. government presented huge amounts of evidence indicating that a man named Luis Posada Carriles um, was guilty of masterminding the bombing of a Cuban commercial airliner, killing 73 people, and of masterminding the hotel bombings, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1997. But they only charged him with lying on his immigration form. This was a little odd. Anyway, the jury acquitted him. I mean, one wonders why. If <clears throat> one, one wonders why the government would present all this information about him being a terrorist and then charge him with lying on an immigration form. Well, one of the most one of the most surprising things about the film is that you managed to get members of Miami's Cuban community to talk about all of these things about the bombings and the other terrorist acts and all the things that had happened there. So, how did that come about? Well, don't you don't people usually talk about things they're proud of? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I so. I don't know how else to think about it. You know. So, oh, okay, you know, tell me about the big bombings you did. Okay, now sit back, Junior, and I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> Your portrait of this community suggests that it's far more interesting and diverse than most of us had always thought. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, be yes, there's, uh, there's another side of Miami. There's, a, there's a, uh, um, a smaller group of Cuban exiles who are reasonable and want to have some kind of reconciliation with the island that's 52 years now and they figure it's long enough let's you know let's make up um, you know it, the, the irony that is not appreciated either in Washington or in the most how should I say it extremist circles in Miami is that Fidel Castro added what should, should have been a chapter to Machiavelli's The Prince the chapter would have been called how to deal with your enemies and Fidel's answer was export your enemies 
from your island to your larger enemy 90 miles away. Then that enemy will begin to affect or alter the destiny of your bigger enemy. For example, we didn't enjoy eight years of President Gore as a result of these people. Uh, instead, we had eight years of President Bush, uh, a war in Iraq, a war in Afghanistan, uh, a bankrupt economy, you know, little things like that. Uh, and the Cuban exiles played a huge role in that. The other, say, the other fascinating and surprising thing about the film is that you actually got retired CIA and FBI operatives to talk about their role in trying to sabotage the revolution and assassinating Fidel. How did you manage that? I asked them. <laughs> Again, they just opened up? <laughs> well, let, let's put it this way. Uh, th there's a history with some of these FB retired FBI agents. Um, two of my colleagues, Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Moffat, were assassinated in a bombing in 1976 in Washington, D.C., three-quarters of a mile from the White House. And these FBI agents cracked the case. And I worked with them, sometimes against them, but sometimes with them. And we established a certain relationship that I was honest and they were honest. And um, I wrote a book called Assassination on Embassy Row, which they felt was very accurate. And we've been friends ever since. I mean, we don't necessarily agree politically, but we figure uh, if, I, if they ask me a favor, I'll do it. And if I ask them a favor, they'll do it. But I think it's also that they have no problem of talking for the historical record at this point. So what and, about... Uh, I was glad they did. What about the, the Cuban Five themselves? Tell us a bit about them. Do you think they'll ever be released from jail or receive fair trials? Well, um, if, if the uh, appellate courts ever agree that, uh, you know, with what I said, that, you know, that the, the venue of Miami precluded a fair trial, you could not get a fair trial for Cuban agents in the city of Miami. I mean, the jury, uh, for example, they had their license plates photographed by various members of the media who were also paid by the U.S. government to write negative stories during the trial. This is another uh, reason for appeal that's coming up now. So if you're a member of the jury and you see people photographing your license plate, you figure they can find out where your house is. And if you vote to acquit these guys, you know that the best thing that can happen to you is that your house will get burned down. You know, and uh, who knows, the judge, you know, uh, everybody, I, I think, in, in Canada has seen The Sopranos, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go, you go to the grocery store and, <clears throat> and some, uh, you know, shady-looking character comes up to you and says, you know, you've got really nice grandchildren. I really like your grandchildren. And she says, well, how do you know my grandchildren? We know, we know, and that's it. <laughs> so there's, there's a, you don't need another message, right? So where where can people see the film? Like how can they well, how can they how can they get a chance to see it? Well, um, if people in uh, Winnipeg are going to San Francisco on Saturday, they can see it at the Brava Theater at six thirty <laughs> p.m. Uh, that's the only scheduled showing we have right now. Uh, there's a distributor called Cinema Libre Studio, and they have a website. And they're going to be uh, distributing the film. Uh, in the meantime, the Canadian Dimension Collective will know how to get in touch with me, uh, and I can forward messages if people need to do so. And I think, you know, Danny Glover is also in the film, as you know, mm -hmm. um, playing himself, handing out petitions to uh, f 
see the Cuban Five, and of course nobody knows who they are. You know, one guy thinks they're a basketball team, and, a, and one thinks they're a rock band, and another thinks they're a salsa band. Uh, so Americans don't know who they are, and I would assume Canadians might need to be educated as well. Well, clearly, uh, it's five guys. Clearly, it's a really important story that you've chosen to tell with the film. But thank you for speaking with us today about it, uh, and we urge all of our listeners uh, to check it out if they get the chance. And thanks for being with us, Saul. Well, thanks for having me again. We've been speaking with Saul Landau, California-based author, broadcaster, and filmmaker, about his new film, Will the Real Terrorist Stand Up? Hi, I'm Mitch Pollock. This is Music is the Weapon. And this week, I kind of want to start with a memory. A memory of being scared shitless all the time that we were going to come into a nuclear war that we're going to have a big nuclear conflict. I grew up with that just like everybody else in my generation. Hiroshima, Nagasaki really showed us the way, what was possible, and we had everybody lined up pointing these missiles at each other. Well, not so much of that these days, a little bit of people, a little bit of craziness, but there's nothing quite as crazy that I can see is making a buck working with nukes. And I think Nature showed us what's possible, what's terribly possible in Japan. And I think it's time we just banned nukes from anything, not just weapons, from any kind of industrial use, any time of municipal or countrywide use. Nukes could kill us all. And those idiots are playing with our lives. So this is a song. This is the only song I could find that really expressed the emotion of it. I've played the song before. It's, it's the little girl of Hiroshima. Here is Anne Hills. I come and stand at every door But none can hear my silent tread I knock and yet remain unseen For I am dead for I am dead I'm only seven Although I died In Hiroshima long ago I'm seven now as I was then When children die They do not grow My hair was scorched by swirling flame My eyes grew dim My eyes grew blind Death came and turned my bones to dust And that was scattered by the Nothing for myself 
Probably one of the most prolific unknown songwriters. People know he sings these songs, but there's so many songs around that uh, he's written that no one knows he's written. Here's a here's an amazing song. Here is Holly Near singing "Quiet Early Morning." Mm-hmm. 
Don't you know it's darkest before the dawn? And this thought keeps me moving on. If we could heed these early warnings, the time is now quite early. Dark 
Stephen Fearing with The Parting Glass, and before that, Holly Near with Quiet Early Morning. And that's it for this week. Take care. See you next week. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Surik. Alert headlines by Chris Webb, Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.